Today's Mother's Day, the day when families pay special tribute to their moms in various ways. Uh, we take them out to dinner, if you can get into the restaurant. Uh, we buy them special gifts or uh, send them cards. And, and even if your mother is no longer living, you, know, you can still honor her memory today. You can take time to recall special moments spent with her and to uh, reminisce about all the things that, uh, that your mom may have said or done. So it's, it's a day we can all participate in one way or another, and especially to reflect on the lessons that they taught us growing up, lessons that uh, you know have stayed with us all the way to this day. And things like I can remember uh, my own mom teaching my brother and me, like teaching us how to pray. And in fact, I, I can still hear her saying, you two better pray that that Kool-Aid stain comes out of my carpet. Uh, she, she instilled in us a sense of imagination, like she would say things like, uh, don't do that again or else. And, and then we'd have to mentally fill in the blank about whatever horrible you know, thing that or else might possibly be. Uh, she taught us how to count, especially up to 10. She taught us the conditions of cause and effect when she said things like, if you uh, fall off of that and break your legs, don't come running to me. <laughs> but, but seriously, mother's motherhood is a great and godly vocation. In fact, in his larger catechism, Martin Luther explained it like this. He said, God has given motherhood a special position of honor higher than that of any other walk of life under it. As he distinguishes father and mother above all other persons on earth and places them next to himself. And so even though Mother's Day is not a biblical holiday, it is an important one nonetheless it actually does kind of, in a roundabout way, fit into today's appointed lectionary reading that comes from the Gospel of John, where our Lord Jesus promises that regardless of how we feel or where what life takes us, that his presence, like a loving parent, will never abandon us. It's a text that comes almost like a flashback, really, uh, in the storyline back to the Thursday night of the Last Supper, just prior to the crucifixion, and that brings with it the promise of Christ's abiding presence with us here this morning, even 21 centuries later. And so I want you to open, if you would, your Bible to John chapter 14. And I'm going to be reading to you verses 15 to 21. And so listen this morning to the voice of the Spirit. And this is Jesus speaking. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And because I live, you also will live. And in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, our Father, we ask you to prepare our hearts to receive your word today. Uh, the way a child receives the word of a loving parent. We ask you, Father, even as we sung in the hymn this morning, to uh, open our eyes, open our ears, uh, move our hearts, Father, this morning by your Holy Spirit until we see Jesus, because it's in his name we pray. Amen. So believe it or not, we're already 
drawing near to the end of this season of Eastertide. Next week, we're going to celebrate uh, Ascension Sunday, and then the week after that, the Feast of Pentecost that commemorates the birthday of the church. And so we're really moving right along. But Pat asked me this morning if we were still in the season of Easter. And yes, for, for this morning, it's still Easter. And we're still examining the majesty and the mystery of our Lord's resurrection. And we've actually been doing it from a bunch of different perspectives. If you remember on, on the Easter Sunday itself, first we looked at that initial experience where the father, followers of Jesus were encountering the empty tomb on that Easter morning. And then we looked over the shoulder of the Apostle Thomas as he awakened from doubt and actually became one of the most widely traveled of the original apostles in spreading the gospel. The week after that, we walked with Cleopas and his traveling companion on the road to Emmaus and witnessed their recognition of Jesus in the exposition of his word and in the breaking of the bread. And then last week, if you remember, we read about the resurrected saints that uh, accompanied our Lord back from the grave as the first fruits of his reappearing. And, you know, if you kind of look at, at all of those stories carefully, there's kind of a dual theme uh, running through them, the theme of both remembering and reassurance. Uh, of, on the one hand, remembering the words of our Lord just prior to his death, and then, of course, the reassurance of their truthfulness and the reality of the resurrection, which in turn is good news for you and me today because, brothers and sisters, if our Lord did what he promised in the past, we can have every reason to believe that he'll do the same for us in the present and on into the future. And that he'll do it like a loving parent who wants nothing but the best for their children. And I think that's really an important aspect of today's lesson. It's actually why in Luke 11, our Lord asks rhetorically, he says, would any of you give your son a snake when he asks for a fish? Or would you give him a scorpion when he asks for an egg? As bad as you are, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more then will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Because, see, brothers and sisters, in the original miracle of creation, God made the parent-child love bond, and he designed it on purpose so that when he tells us he has compassion on us the way a parent has compassion on their children, when he, he tells us that he gives us good gifts the way a father or a mother gives good gifts to their children, we can begin to have an inkling of God's character. Even if, you know, we may have personally had or may even have been less than perfect parents, the metaphor still rings true because God's parental love for us surpasses our human version by a country mile. One author put it like this. She said, uh, we aren't simply inconvenient children, though we are that. We aren't simply dependent on him for every breath, though we are that. We've lived from the day of our birth in open rebellion against him, predisposed to war with him, incapable of pleasing or loving him, lacking all the charms that endear infants to parents, and yet God loved us, chose us, set us apart to be his own, and he gave us the ability to love him even as he gave us his son in love. And brothers and sisters, it is precisely because of that kind of parental love that our Lord can turn to his men in today's reading and by extension to you and me and say, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And you know, it's kind of funny because every time I started working on the sermon this week and I got to that line, it kept reminding me of this kind of running joke that I have with my daughter. Because uh, ever since she was a really little girl, she would always look at me with those big, beautiful brown eyes. And she would say, Daddy, if you love me, 
you know, dot, 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 you'll do, you'll do this or that, right? Daddy, if you love me, you'll do this. Daddy, if you love me, you'll do that. Uh, and, and then fill in the blank with whatever the request was that she wanted. And as you can imagine, it was and is still a very incredibly effective tactic. Uh, that, that is, and I'm telling a story on her. She's going to get me later. Uh, that is until I tried it in reverse because two weekends ago, I, I asked her to do something for me with that same magic phrase attached. And I said, Kitty, honey, if you love me, you'll heat up two of those chicken patties that I like for lunch. And, and without even missing a beat, she looked back at me with those big, beautiful brown eyes. And what did you say? Dad, if you love me, you'll make them yourself. <laughs> so, so guess who cooked his own chicken patties? <laughs> But, but I tell you that story for a reason, because although she and I were just joking around, my request that she do what I said wasn't really motivated by love at all, was it? No, it was selfish, right? And so are so many of the requests that men and women and husbands and wives and parents and children make of one another in the dynamics of our various relationships. So that when we hear Jesus say something like, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It almost kind of puts your hackles up for a minute, doesn't it? Because humanly speaking, if you and I were to start seriously going around saying to people, if you love me, you'll do what I say, uh, and then they actually go ahead and do it, pretty soon what you'll have is not true love, but full-blown toxic relationships, right? For just the reason I said, because you and I are selfish. Uh, you, you and I are sinful. You and I, no matter how much we love someone else, are always to some extent motivated by self-interest and self-preservation, but not so with God. Because when he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, it's not for his benefit. It's for ours. It's for our good. And it's because he has the best of intentions for his people, even if he is personally diminished by it. Just as, as Pat sung, it couldn't have been a more perfect illustration for the sermon. And brothers and sisters, the proof of that was on the cross was on the cross where our Lord's suffering and humiliation and death opened the gates of heaven and a new and living way into the presence of the Almighty so that forever we can hear his promise that I will not leave you as orphans, but I'll come to you. Church, can you imagine the God of the universe coming to us? C coming to you, coming to me personally? But, you know, that's the message of all of Scripture, right? Think about it like this, and we, we've talked about this in Sunday school class before. When Adam and Eve sinned and then hid in the garden, who chased after whom? God went after Adam and Eve, didn't he? When Abraham was off in pagan lands worshiping pagan idols, who called out to whom? God called out to Abraham. When Moses was on the backside of nowhere tending sheep, who spoke to who first? God spoke to Moses in the burning bush. And when the prodigal son wasted all his inheritance and was still far from home, who ran to whom? The father ran. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for those of us who have been graciously adopted into the body of Christ. And that idea, that metaphor of adoption is used repeatedly in Scripture to explain how Christians are brought into the family of God. It's why Galatians chapter 4 says, so also when we were children, we were enslaved under the basic principles of the world but when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law, that we might receive our adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, cry out, Abba, Father. So then you are no longer a slave, but a child. 
And since you're his child, God will give you all that he has for his children. And church, that's the message of Eastertide. Because remember, you know, on that Thursday evening in the upper room with the disciples, they were starting to feel like they were about to become orphans. Jesus just told them he was going away, uh, going away to a place that they couldn't follow. But Jesus had already called them away, right, from their homes and from their families and from their occupations. And now he's leaving them to carry on without him. And so it's no wonder then that they started to feel kind of worried. But Jesus calms their fears by promising that even though he's leaving them for a while, that he's not leaving them alone. And his message here to them and to us as believers is that when he dies, he'll live again. And by doing that, acquiring and confirming our redemption. And then he and the Father and the Spirit will come to those that love them and be with them forever, and thus fulfilling that plan that God laid out for our lives from the very beginning. Just like we read in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among who we all once walked, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And notice it's not good works to gain our salvation, and not more and more obligations to try to keep it up or to somehow maintain it, but a show of the kind of loyalty and loving obedience that demonstrates that we have a genuine relationship with God in the first place. And, and you know, actually, when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because why in the world would the Trinity of the Godhead go to all the trouble to go to dwell with people that don't love or want them? Right, and, and on the other hand, why would someone who doesn't genuinely love the Father, Son, and the Spirit want them around in the first place? And we've talked about this before, too, in relation to the, the verse that's appeared on the front of our bulletin from the beginning of the COVID period uh, from Hebrews chapter 10 that says, Let us not give up the habit of meeting together as some are doing. Instead, let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day of the Lord coming nearer to which I've kind of added on several occasions, you know, if you don't get excited about coming to church and gathering personally with the people of God and worshiping in his house and, and being in his presence in the sanctuary, then what in the world do you want to go to heaven for? Right? Because it's just, it's just going to be more of this. Just more of what's going on today. And so that you need to ask yourself, if I don't find myself longing for those things, and if I don't find myself longing for the Lord like he's commanded us to, you might want to ask yourself, am I the Christian that I think I am? Because this promise not to be orphaned and to be adopted into the family of God and to enjoy the gifts and the fruits of the Spirit is not for the whole world at large, but it's for the elect. That's why we read Jesus' words that he would give to those who love him and obey him. He says, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. 
Right? And so it's pretty clear there that the gift of intimacy and, and help and love being promised in these verses is something that's not for everyone, but rather it's something so personal, so intimate, so reciprocal and relational that the world cannot receive it, and that those who do receive these gifts, these, these promises, this love are not simply called Christians or believers, but they're described repeatedly actually four times in this text as those who love Jesus. And again, not because we, we worked that up or we worked out that love on our own. We, in fact, we know the Apostle John believed that too because he tells us later in 1 John 4, he says, we love because he first loved us. So we know that God's love proceeds and enables our own. And yet, we're also told that God in turn responds back to that mirrored gift of love with a unique and personal and intimate affection that belongs only to those that love his son. But then that leaves us a really big question, right? Uh, what does it mean to love Jesus? What does that look like? When John Piper put it like this, he said, our love for Jesus is a response to beauty and greatness and glory. It's desiring him because he's infinitely desirable. It's admiring him because he's infinitely admirable. It's treasuring him because he is infinitely valuable. It's enjoying him because he is infinitely enjoyable. It's being satisfied with all that he is because he is infinitely satisfying. It's a reflex to the awakened and newborn human soul to all that is true and good and beautiful embodied in Jesus Christ. In short, loving Jesus is not a matter of doing excellent things. It's a matter of delighting in an excellent Savior. Right? delighting in him and doing those things that he loves in gratitude because he's done so much for us. R.C. Sproul, in his commentary on this passage, wrote, he said, the one who loves Jesus subordinates his own desire to those of the Lord. Our love for Christ does not merit salvation and neither does keeping his commandments, but keeping his commandments reveal that we have been united to him for salvation and possess the genuine love that is the consequence of genuine faith. And what are those commandments that Jesus has in mind when he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments? Well, there's two, to love God and to love each other. In Matthew 22, Jesus says it like this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. But that's still a pretty tall order, right? But praise God, Jesus already knows that. And he promised not to leave his disciples or us to go it alone. And so he says, I'll ask the Father. And he'll give you another helper. To be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him because he dwells with you and in you. And he said, I, I will not leave you as orphans. Another commentator said of this, anyone who has ever loved and lost a spouse, a child, a friend, a parent, their personal security or their hope for the future knows this fear. We fear becoming orphaned. And that fear points to the deeper reality that by ourselves we're not enough. And it's not that however we are deficient, but rather it is we were never intended or created to be self-sufficient. We were never intended or created to be self-sufficient. But brothers and sisters, by the Holy Spirit, we become more and more like Jesus. 
and we continue his saving work while being embraced in the arms of a loving heavenly parent. And so the question I want to leave you with this morning is how about you? Are, are you feeling kind of orphaned this Mother's Day? I, and I, I can feel like that from time to time when I think about the loss of my parents. But in our gospel reading, Jesus promises to be with us and to live in us by his Holy Spirit. And although we can't see him, we can see the effect of his presence in people's lives. In changed lives, both our own and the lives of others, as we express our love and our thankfulness by obeying him. And gain day by day an increasing assurance that he's with us. That he's guiding us and leading us and comforting us, and transforming us to become like himself, and at the same time, more and more able to fulfill his great commission. And church, today is the perfect day to start. Receive the Holy Spirit. Repent and believe the gospel. Make a public profession of faith and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And brothers and sisters, the Bible says this promise is for you and for your children this Mother's Day. This promise to move from orphans to heirs and to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray together. Precious Lord, we thank you that you've promised never to leave us or forsake us. We ask you, Lord, to please write that promise on all your people's hearts today. And Father, for those who, uh, who don't know you, reach out to them in this moment and gather them, Lord, as a, as a hen gathers her chicks and raise them to new life, Father. Raise up a new people for yourself. And we ask you, Lord, to be with us as we go about this week that uh, everything that we say and do would give you praise, honor, and glory through Christ our Lord in whose name we pray. Amen. And brothers and sisters, would you please stand for the Apostles' Creed and for our closing hymn. And so let's confess together publicly what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.